Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover Romans 7, verses 1 through 7 in this audio. If I had to give it a title, I would call it The Law Produces Sinful Knowledge and Sinful Actions. The context is this, the general context. Paul, after a greeting in Romans 1, stated that Gentiles are in need or are under God's wrath. In chapter 2, he says it's not only Gentiles, but it's also Jews who are under God's wrath. He emphasized the Jewish part, the Jewish situation in Romans 2. He continues in Romans 3. At the end of Romans 3, he says, therefore, we need to be justified by faith, not by the law. He goes to Romans 4. He goes into the fact that Abraham was justified by faith and not by law, and therefore he is the father of all who believe, both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles. Then Paul moves on to chapter 5, having been justified, we also need to be sanctified. Now, justified means to be, to be declared righteous in God's divine courtroom, but how about here on this earth as we live out our Christian life actually? And so Paul talks about that. Well, the first problem is we, if we want to be sanctified, we have the power of sin. So Paul jumps all over sin. And of course, the reason he jumps all over sin in chapter 6 is because sin produces death. Then we go to chapter 7, and after Paul talks about how sin is bad, now he talks about how the law is bad in the, fa- in the aspect of when one considers that the law produces sin, which is bad. So the connection between sin and law is very close in 6 and 7, chapter 6 and 7. And then he's going to get to the good news in the next chapter that how do we, how do we get sanctified, not by trying to get rid of sin using the law, but by the Holy Spirit living in us. So that's our context. We start with verse 1. And by the way, Paul has got to guard himself. He's speaking against the law so much in chapter 7. He's got to also point out that it's not the law itself that's sinful. It's the passions that the law produces. The law itself is holy and just. When used righteously, used properly, it just shows that people are sinners. It's not meant to justify, though. And that's what Paul's talking about here in Romans is how do we get justified? And the law ain't the way to do it. We go to Romans 7, verse 1. Since I, Paul, am speaking to those who understand law, brothers, are you unaware that the law has authority over someone as long as he lives? Paul is speaking to those who understand law, and he calls them brothers. That would be the Jews. He's still trying to deal with this law problem. That's the theme of chapter 7. What place does the law have in the life of Christians? Let me just give you a heads up here. Absolutely none. I remember I was at a theology meeting at someone's house recently, and somebody asked the question, I'd just like to know what the relationship of the law to the Christian is. And I immediately said, or thought, nothing. And has absolutely nothing to do with us. Nothing. We'll see that as we go through here. Now, Paul is going to use a marriage metaphor to prove that we're free from the law. So he goes, so he states in the end of verse 1, Are you unaware that the law has authority over someone as long as he lives? And, of course, what his point is is, we don't live anymore because we're, we're dead to the law. So we don't live anymore as far as the law is concerned. Paul's expanding upon what he said in Romans 6, verse 14. Romans 6:14 says, For sin will not rule over you because you are not under law but under grace. That key verse is my favorite verse, really. You want to sin, get under the law. You want to not sin, get under grace. Now, John Gill points out that Paul knew this statement would be displeasing to many Jewish Christians who were brainwashed into loving the law of Moses and thinking it was their way of salvation. So he takes up the issue again. He really hits it hard. Look, Jewish Christians, you are free from the law. And by the way, as an application point, even though Gentiles are not under the Jewish law, we are under the law of our conscience. And we can take the law of Christ 
love your enemies and turn it into a law that we're trying to keep in our own flesh, by our own strength, without the Holy Spirit, and it becomes a law that kills you. It's the same. Then, no matter what law you use, if you're under law, it's going to kill you. So the law has authority over someone. So let's say that you're a Jew and you're still living under the law, and that law has authority over you. The Greek word there means to lord over, to rule over, to have dominion over, to have power over, as Thayer's lexicon says. So that means that law has you by the neck. Paul is speak, I said earlier, Paul is speaking to Jews when he calls them brothers. He could also be talking to Gentile proselytes who know a lot about the law. Like I say, it doesn't really matter. It even applies to Gentiles who don't know the law, but he's, he's not talking. He, you could apply it to those Gentiles, but here he's specifically speaking about Jewish believers. We go to Romans 7, verses 2 through 3. For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding her husband. So then if she gives herself to another man while her husband is living, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. Then if she gives herself to another man, she is not an adulteress. Now what Paul is getting at here is that the Christian is like a woman who is married and her husband dies. Is she free to remarry? Well, of course she is. The law no longer has an effect over her. She's dead to the law. So the first husband would be like the Mosaic law. The first husband dies, that means as far as the woman is concerned, as far as the Jew is concerned, the Mosaic law is dead. It's over with. Kaputsky. And so then that woman is free to marry someone else, which would be the Jesus. And she's now under the law of Christ, not under the law of Moses. And she's not an adulteress. So all you Jewish people who are looking at your Gentile Christian brothers and saying, well, you know, you're an adulteress. You've left, you've left the law of Moses. And now you're married to somebody, something else. No, no, you can't. You can't say anything bad about that woman. An adulteress is serious, something serious to call somebody. And likewise, I would suggest that if you tell people that they're free from the Mosaic Law, and then you get called a antinomian for that, you got the big scarlet A on your chest. Are you listening, Reform people? Quit calling people who say that we're free from the Mosaic Law all of it, judicial, civil, and moral, and we're under the law of Christ. In other words, New Covenant theology people like yours truly. Don't call us antinomians. Don't put a scarlet A on us. You've got no moral right to do that. Now, notice that Paul, in this analogy here, says the woman is released. He didn't say she is partially released when her first husband dies. Paul doesn't mean that the Jewish Christian is partially released from the Mosaic Law when the Christian dies to the Mosaic Law. In other words, now... She's free from the judicial and ceremonial aspects of the law, but she's still married to the moral aspect of the Mosaic law? Nonsense. That's not what he says. So many Christians want to avoid what Paul is actually saying here. Here's some examples of what people erroneously say. We're free from the penalty of the law, but we're still under the law's prescriptions. That's basically the reformers, John Calvin and his reformers, Reformed followers who say that the law is a rule of Christ, the so-called third use of the law. It's like you're walking down a path and you see the word of God in front of you. The word is a light into your path. But you've got fences on the left and the right. So in case you get off the path, you bang into the fence, and the, which is the law. And the law then puts you back on the path towards God. Nonsense. Another way that this can be stated erroneously, is people will say, oh, we're free from the law for justification, but not for sanctification. Actually, they don't actually put it that baldly. That's the way I rephrase what they're saying. What people usually say is, we're free from the ceremony and judicial law, but we're not free from the moral law. And 
what they're really saying is we're free from the law for justification, but not for sanctification. We're free from the penalty of the law, but we're still under the law's prescriptions to help us be holy. Now, I'm going to read you four scriptures, and I want you to ask yourself, do these scriptures say that we are partially released from the law? That we are released from the judicial and ceremonial aspects of the law, but not the moral parts of the law? Galatians 3, 23-25, before this faith came, before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a garden. Guardian. It's over, folks. It's thick. It's finished. By the way, that verse is often misinterpreted to say that the law kind of helps us along to the average Christian until all of a sudden we can turn it, we can grow up and become under the tutelage of Christ. No, it's talking about the old covenant Mosaic law was the tutor was the tutor and now that the, the student has grown up and become an adult, that's the New Testament Christian, the tutor is fired. Over. Galatians 5.18, but if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. There's that great contrast between Spirit and law. Not under the law. Hebrews 7.12, for when there is a change of the priesthood, there must be a change of law as well. Change of law from the law of Moses to the law of Christ. Hebrews 7.18 and 19, so the previous command is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable, for the law perfected nothing. But a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Again, what part of annulled do we not understand? It's over with. And yet Christians are go back and say, what's, what's the relationship between the Christian and the law? There ain't no relationship between the Christian and the law because the law isn't annulled. We are dead to it. D-E-A-D. What part of dead do we not understand? Oh, but if you get rid of the moral law, the moral part of the Mosaic law, then you're going to be free to go out and rob a bank and, and have mistresses. And, 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 oh, here's the favorite. And you could even have sex with animals. Nonsense. We're under the law of Christ. The law of Christ does not allow such things. Let's mention one of the two passages where Paul says we're under the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9, 20-21. Again, to avoid this charge of antinomianism. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law. Paul himself says, I am not under the law. He became like one under the law, but he was not under the law. But he came like one under the law to win those under the law. To those who are without that law, that would be the Gentiles, I became as a Gentile without the law. And then Paul makes his defensive hedge here. I am one without the, I'm like one without the law. Not being without God's law, but within Christ's law. In other words, he's out from the law of Moses, but he's not out from the law of Christ. He's not an antinomian. He does this to win those without the law. Note the three key prepositions in this phrase. He says the Jews are under the law. Verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 9. I myself, I became like a Jew to win Jews those under the law. So the Jews are under the law. Then he says the Gentiles are without the law. He said I became the do those who are without the law so I can win those who are without the law. But then he says, however, I as a Christian am within the law of Christ. Under The Jews are under the Mosaic Law, the Gentiles are without the Mosaic Law, and the Christian is within the law of Christ. Now Paul says this woman is free to remarry. Excuse me. Paul says 
in verse 2, a married woman is legally bound to her husband. Notice that's a general statement. There were two exceptions in the scriptures, Matthew 19, 9. In the case of adultery, the woman was no longer bound to her husband. If the husband committed adultery, and if the unbelieving spouse deserted her, she was free. She would be free to remarry. That's in 1 Corinthians 7, 15. John Gill points out the two exceptions now, the fact that this woman can remarry after her first husband dies shows that, in general, second marriages are lawful. But note that this is a second marriage after the, after the death of the first husband. Can we then use this example to prove the proposition that it's all right for a woman to remarry after she divorces her first husband? That's a different issue, and I don't think we should use this passage here to argue that issue on remarriage after a divorce, because this is remarriage after a death. Now, I do believe because of the definition of divorce, which means that the marriage is cut by adultery, is divided, the Greek word is, that you can prove that it's okay to remarry because, I mean, you know, if, if you're, the law no longer binds you because you got divorced, well, then it's logical to me you can get remarried. The only problem I have with that is when the person committing the adultery then is free to remarry. If you got a husband and wife, let's say the wife commits adultery, and then she says, okay, well, my first marriage is broken because of my adultery, therefore I can marry a second husband. Well, then that seems to me that just gives license to people to go out and commit adultery so they can get remarried. So I've got a problem with that. But if it's the re adultery of the, of the other spouse, then it seems to me the non-offending spouse, the non-adulterous spouse, should be free to remarry. But that's an issue for another time. That's an issue for a theological Audio, Romans 7, 4, Therefore, my brothers, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the crucified body of the Messiah, so that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we may bear fruit for God. Now Paul brings out the implications of his analogy, just like that woman whose husband died and she was free to remarry. So we, having died to the law, the law is dead to us. We are free to remarry, and we remarried Jesus, if you will. We are joined to the crucified body of the Messiah. We are joined to him who was raised from the dead. We are identified in death, in baptism. When we go down under the water, we are identified with Jesus' death. And when we come out of the water as a resurrected being, we are identified with Jesus in his life. And so we are married to him now. Why? So that we may bear fruit for God. Just like that woman remarries after being after her first husband dies and she has more children with a new husband, likewise we bear fruit. We produce more fruit for God. Not fruit that leads to death, as that's what happens when you're married to the law, but fruit that is God's fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, long-suffering, and so forth. Now, Paul says here in verse 4, Romans 7, you were put to death in relation to the law. Last chapter in Romans 6, 2 through 7, the Christian dies to sin. But here in verse 4, the Christian dies to the law. And that shows that Paul has kind of shifted from the focus on the, the, the death effects of sin in chapter 6. And now he's going over to chapter 7 and talking about how law produces sin, of course, and sin produces death. Chapter 6 establishes that sin produces death. And now chapter 7 is going to establish that the law produces sin. Well, if the law produces sin and the sin produces death, then the law also produces death. And that's his main point. Notice that the whole point of being free from the law is to bear fruit for God. Again, that's the purpose of this chapter, sanctification. You want to be bear fruit for God? You want to be sanctified? You've got to die to the law. You've got to get rid of it. Romans 6, 4, last chapter. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death. We've got to die. 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. See, the purpose of death is to walk into the new way of life. The purpose of Jesus' crucifixion was his resurrection. The purpose of the Christian's death to the law and sin is his resurrection to walk in a new and living way, a new way of life. You want to bear fruit from God, you've got to get under the, out from under the law. That famous verse in Romans 6.14 says this, For sin will not rule over you because you are not under law but under grace. And the logical restatement of that verse is sin will rule over you because you are under law but not under grace. So the whole purpose of being released from the law is to produce fruit, to bear fruit to God. As Paul says in verse 4 in Romans 7, to bear fruit for God, it is not to give us an antinomian license to sin, as Paul's critics were wont to say. Bearing fruit for God is a scriptural theme we can find in Romans 6.22. But now, since you have been liberated from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification, and the end is eternal life. That's Paul getting ready to switch from justification to sanctification as he prepares to jump into chapter 7 and talk about sanctification. Fruit, and the end of that kind of fruit, the fruit of righteousness, is sanctification and eternal life. John 15:8. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So Paul is not preaching against righteousness and fruit. He's preaching in favor of it. And the way you get fruit is you've got to get out from under the law. Now we, know, we need to point out here, and this is something that has bothered me for years until I saw somebody explain it, is Paul is using an inverted analogy here. Or maybe I should say a shifting analogy. In verses 2 through 3, we have a death. We have a woman and her first husband. The woman's the Christian. The first husband is the law. And who dies? The first husband. So the law dies in verses 2 through 3. But now in verse 4, it's not the law that dies. It's the Christian that dies. Therefore, my brothers, you also were put to death. You, the Christian, were put to death in verse 4. And so he shifts the spouses in the analogy, and I, I remember used to saying, oh, Paul, why did you do this? It makes things so hard. Well, it's not really hard if you back up a little bit and just make the point of the analogy, there's a death in the relationship, you know, and quit worrying about which one dies, the husband or the, or the, or the wife. Paul is just trying to say that the law is dead. It has no power over us. He's not trying to say who, it, he's not trying to say, well, he in verses 2 to 3, he's saying the law is dead, and therefore the relationship between the law and the Christians is dead. In verse 4, he's saying the Christian dies to the law. That means the Christian has no relationship to the law. The point is the same. The law has no relationship to the believer. Here's a quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown on this point. It has been thought that the apostles should here have said that the law died to us, not we to the law. But that purposely inverted the figure to avoid the harshness to Jewish ears of the death of the law. Now, Chrysostom pointed this out, John Calvin, Charles Harge at, at Princeton. But this is to mistake the apostle's design in employing this figure, which was merely to illustrate the general principle that, quote, death dissolves legal obligation. That's his general point. Now, let's quit worrying about who dies. Now, that's an interesting point that Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out, that the reason that Paul avoided saying that the law dies, and so the woman is free. The reason he kind of backed off on that in verse 4 and says the Christian dies in relation to the law. The relationship dies rather than the law dies, is that would sound real harsh to a Jew, and he's trying to be as nice as he can about it. So instead of saying the law died, he says our relationship to the law died in verse 4. We go to verse 5. For when we were in the flesh... 
the sinful passions operated through the law in every part of us and bore fruit for death. Now, through the law, the law is the agency and agent that increases sin. The law does not decrease sin in order to make us holy. And that is a key, key point in this chapter 7. How does the law do this? Well, the NIV Study Bible says that the natural desire of sinful man is to desire the forbidden thing. When your mother says, don't put your hand in that cookie jar, what is the first thing that crosses your mind? In fact, what are you thinking about all day and all night as you lie in the bed going to sleep with visions of cookies in your brain? That's what the law does. Paul has already said this in Romans 5.20. The law came along to multiply the trespass. 1 Corinthians 15.56, now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Just like a wasp has muscles that thrust that stinger into your flesh and causes you pain, so the law is the law is like the muscles, the stinger is like sin, and the law pushes that stinger into your body and poisons you. The law produces sin and death, folks. It does not produce fruit for God, as Paul mentioned in verse 4. He said, if you will die to the law, why? So you can produce fruit for God. But if you don't die to the law, you're going to find the law is going to be producing sinful passions in your life. And why would we want that? Fruit for death, that's kind of an interesting metaphor, because usually you think of fruit as a good thing. But fruit for death, it means the, by, the products, a byproduct which produces death. Paul uses the same phrase in Romans 6:21, last chapter. So what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? For the end of those things is death. What fruit was produced by sin that you used to practice? Death. The wages of sin is death. The fruit of sin is death. Now, we're talking about death here. Remember, there's two kinds of death. Bearing fruit for death. Well, there's two kinds of death. Spiritual death comes first. When you're born, you're spiritually dead. You're physically alive, but you're spiritually dead because you're separated from God. And then, depending on when you get saved, you spend the first part of your life dead spiritually, then you get saved, and now you're alive. So now you're physically alive and you're spiritually alive. Ah, but then physical death comes next, but spiritual life goes on forever and ever and ever. Spiritual death is eternal separation from God, which is a polite way of saying hell. So the reward for your union with the law, if you want to call it a reward, is death. That's what you're going to get, being, being in union with the law. Now Paul mentions here this word flesh, for the, I think for the first time. For when we were in the flesh, the Greek word is sarx. Now this is a common metaphor that Paul uses. If the literal definition of sarx, flesh, refers to the skin that covers our bones and by extension to our physical bodies. But Paul, of course, is using it in a metaphorical sense. That And Thayer defines flesh that way in the metaphorical sense as that within man that is opposed to di divine influence. And there's two main examples of flesh. Man trying to accomplish great things in his own strength without God. The, the, the aim is good, but the method is, is selfish and individual and human rather than divine. And then another kind of uh, fruit of the flesh is when man sins by transgressing God's law. The aim is not good. Robbing a bank is not good, and so that you know you're in the flesh. So there's two ways you can use that term, flesh. But it's a metaphorical use. I remember one time I was fishing for the word metaphorical, and I told this brother, Paul's not talking about the physical use of the flesh. He's talking about ethical flesh. And oh, he started laughing. He was a very literal-minded person, and he started laughing and laughing and laughing like I was a fool. And I thought, ah, I wish I'd have phrased that better, but, you know, he ought not to be laughing because that's exactly how Paul used it. He was using it in an ethical sense, in a negative ethical sense. 
Now, Paul says, for when we were in the flesh, who is the we? Paul is referring to himself and his fellow Jews. Probably. This is according to Steve Ackerson and Adam Clark. John Gill disagrees with that, and he says we could include Gentiles also. And I don't worry too much about that, because even if Paul is talking about the Jews only, it could also, this whole principle operates with Gentiles who are under the law of their conscience. They try to be under that law and try to use that law of conscience to produce fruit for righteousness. Instead, they're going to produce fruit for death. It's the same principle, so I'm not going to worry too much about that. But now, let's look at that little word, were, for when we were in the flesh, past tense. Now, I'm going to introduce the rip-roaring theological controversy that revolves around Romans 7 right here. Does Romans 7 talk about non-believers who are in the flesh, and then they're released from their flesh when they get saved? In Romans 8, they have the Holy Spirit, and then now free to produce sanctification? It could. Or, does it refer to Christians who are in the flesh, excuse me, Christians who operate as if they were non-believers and do things that non-believers do, Christians when they sin, in other words. So is it talking about sinful Christians who are under bondage to sin, or is it talking about non-believers? Now, the interesting thing about this controversy is there's a lot of evidence on both sides of the issue, and that's what makes it such a good controversy. Now, at the first part of Romans chapter 7, the evidence is all in favor of flesh, in favor of the proposition that flesh refers to non-Christians, but when we get later on into the chapter, in our next audio, we're going to see that there's a lot of evidence that it's talking about Christians who are in the flesh. And so then you got to take your pick, take your choice. My wife actually wrote her master's thesis at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois, on that very topic. I probably ought to get, pick that thesis up and read it again. I'll read it. Well, I've, I've already read it once. I'll read it again. I am not going to take a stand. I'm going to take a wussy puss stand on this because I haven't really decided which way I should go on this. I don't think the implications are extremely grave. There are a couple of implications, which I'll mention as I go through. But I think that we can live with either interpretation and stay firm on the general principle that we need to operate in the spirit, Romans 8, and not under the law. Whether you're a non-Christian or a Christian, the law produces death in you. Because even if Paul was not referring to believers here in Romans 7, it is true that when believers start trying to operate under law, they produce flesh, uh, sin, and death in their life, just like it does with non-Christians. So either way, the principle is the same. Now, the first piece of evidence that Paul is talking about unbelievers here and not sinning Christians is, he says, when we were in the flesh, that sounds like past tense, doesn't it? As Steve Ackerson and Jameson Fawcett and Brown say, this shows that here, in the flesh, that phrase, in the flesh, refers to the past unregenerate state. Well, can it also refer to the carnal backslidden Christian? Well, I don't know, but it sure sounds like the past unregenerate state to me. So I think that Steve Ackerson and Jameson Fawcett and Brown have the upper hand on this point right here. Again, you can even add to that the strength of that point by looking at the next verse. How does it start? But now. So the were in the past is contrasted, but now in verse 6. But now we've been released from the law so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit. Sounds like he's talking about now in the Christian state as opposed to the previous non-Christian state when we were in the flesh. Here's another argument saying that this passage refers to the unregenerate state. If you look ahead to Romans 8, 5, and 9, Paul is going to contrast the Christian operating under the Spirit in Romans 8 with what happens in Romans 7. 
And let's look at the contrast as we go through this passage in verses 5 through 9 of Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh think about the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit about the things of the Spirit. For the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. For the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit itself to God's law, for it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. All right, well, all right, all of that flesh, 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 that could be a carnal Christian. I hate to use that word, carnal Christian, because reformers get all upset about it. But those, let's put it this way, sinning Christians cannot please God, and they're producing death in their life. Okay, that could go either way. It could be not unregenerate people, or it could be sinning Christians. But we get to verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And there the contrast between the flesh and the spirit is obviously referring to Christians because of that you, you guys, you all, you Christians that I'm writing to in Romans are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. So it doesn't sound like he's talking about sinning Christians. Since the Spirit of God lives in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So it sounds like he's talking about people in the flesh do not have the Spirit of Christ and do not belong to Christ. What it sounds like. I guess somebody on the other side could say, well, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit means you Romans are not living like hell, but you're living a holy, godly life. You're not living like the Corinthians Christians are living, but you're living a holy life since the spirit of God lives in you. You could say that, but I'm telling you, it sounds like it's talking about unregenerate people because he says, if you do not have the spirit of Christ, you do not belong to him. And therefore, you're in the flesh and not the spirit. Therefore, flesh sounds like the unregenerate state. And if it does so here in Romans 8, well, it's logical to say in Romans 7, too. Now, I haven't gotten to the evidence on the other side yet. I'll hit that next audio. I'll just warn you that I'm not taking a stand here yet. I'm just giving you the, the evidence. We go to verse 6, Romans 7. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the new way of the spirit and not in, in the old letter of letter of the law. Now this repeats what Paul says in verse 4. We die, we are put to death in relation to the law so we may belong to another, to Jesus who was raised from the dead that we may bear fruit for God. So our joining to Jesus helps us bear fruit for God. And so he says the same thing in verse 6, but now we have been released from the law so we can be joined to Jesus. Since we have died to what held us, the Old Testament law held us, and we're dead to that relationship now, so now we can serve in the new way of the Spirit, the new spiritual way. So Paul now contrasts for living under the law, living in the Spirit, and not in the old letter of the law. Now, again, we have to avoid another error here. If we talk about living in the Spirit as being without the law of Christ, oh, the Spirit led me to do this, like one young Chinese Christian woman who has really irritated me. She's a dedicated Christian. And she all of a sudden tells me that God has told her she's going to marry a non-Christian. And I said, did God tell you to directly avoid his scripture? To directly avoid his word? I haven't spoken to her since. I think she's very mad at me. But listen, don't go around telling me the Spirit told you something when it directly contradicts the scripture. Oh, the Spirit told me to divorce my husband. Horse manure. If it violates the scripture, the Spirit didn't tell you that. When Paul says serving in the new way of the Spirit when you're released from the Mosaic Law, he means you are now under the law of Christ, and the law of the Spirit will help you keep the law of Christ. Not in the old letter of the law. That means the old letter of the Mosaic Law. You're not going to keep that. That's over with. All right, verse 6 starts with but now, and again, that sounds like it's the time of Christian when you were a Christian as opposed to when you were unregenerate, making that contrast there. If you hold to that view that Paul is talking about flesh referring to unregenerate, 
people, we have been released from the law. And again, that could be Gentile proselytes. And, and, and you know, listen, it could be Gentiles who are under the law of their conscience, too. It applies to them, although I don't think Paul is talking about that right here. We may serve in the new way of the Spirit, Paul says. He says in Romans 8, 4, just to give you a summary of Romans 8, in order that the law's requirement would be accomplished in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. The law says don't cheat or don't lie. Well, the Holy Spirit tells us don't lie. Moses says don't commit adultery. The Holy Spirit says don't you even look at that naked woman with the eye to take her into your bedroom. Don't even think about it. Paul says in Romans 7, 6, we, that we may serve in the new way of spirit, being dead to that law. We may serve in the new way of the spirit. He also said in the previous chapter, Romans 6, 4, Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. I think some translations have a new and living way, a new way of life, a, a way that produces life. This way it's translated, it sounds like a new way of the course of your life. I like new living way better. It's a way to live. The life in Christ, the life in the Spirit is a way of life. So here's a summary of the new way. We have died with Christ in verse 4. We, are, we have died with Christ. We are identified in his death when we're baptized and so forth. And we're died to Christ in verse 4. And therefore our old man dies. And now we are joined to Christ in verse 4 as our new man is joined to Christ. Now we can bear fruit for God in verse 4. We're released from the law in verse 6. And we serve God in the newness of spirit in, in verse 6. So just summarize all this. We're dead to the law, folks. The Mosaic law or the law of our conscience or any law, the law of Christ without the Holy Spirit as a dead letter. All of these kind of laws, the laws of our traditions, the laws of our community, the self-imposed New Year's resolutions we make. I don't care. Any kind of law you have is going to produce fruit for death because you can't keep it and you're just going to condemn yourself. So if you're married to Moses and all his the Mosaic law and all of Moses' cousins, all the other kind of laws out there, you'll bear fruit for death. But if you are married to Jesus, you will produce fruit for life. Because when you're dead, you have no connection to anything of your past. If you're dead to the law, it's just like when you put a corpse into the tomb, that corpse has no relationship to his previous life. It's over with, folks. And when you're dead to the law, it's over with. You don't have anything to do with the Mosaic law anymore. Now, again, when I talk like that, what are you start trying to say? Well, you're telling me the law is bad? Well, Paul had the same problem, so here's what he says in verse 7, Romans 7. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. In other words, the law had a good use. It showed you that you were a sinner and you needed to get justified by the Spirit, by dying to the law and being in union with Christ. But... You would not have known you were a sinner if it was not for the law, because that's the way God. That's the reason God gave the law. I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, "Do not covet." Paul uses it as an example of the law. He uses covet, covet this. I think this is the tenth commandment. Now, Paul, when he says, "What should we say?" Then this is a logical question, given all the negative things that Paul said in connection with the law in verses four through six. It's a logical question. Somebody's going to ask, "Well, Paul, if the law is that bad, well, why did God give it to Moses?" Now, Paul says here in verse 7, what should we say then? Who's the we? I think it's the editorial we. He's talking about Paul. What should I say then? But, he's, you know, editorial we is polite. He could be talking about Christians in general or mankind in general. It doesn't matter. Now, when he says, is the law sin? Absolutely not. I would not have known sin. Now, remember, I said earlier there's two ways that the law multiplies sin. One is your knowledge of sin, and two is your actions of sin. In fact, that's how I 
title this little section here, Romans 7, 1 through 7, the law produces sinful knowledge and sinful actions. Well, the knowledge, the increase in knowledge is talked about here in verse 7. The increase in sinful actions will be talked about in verse 8, which we'll take up in the next audio. Now, here's an analogy from Pilgrim's Progress talking about the law. The law is like a broom brought into a room where furnishings are covered with dust. Nobody notices the dust until the broom kicks the dust up and everybody says, well, look at all that dust. That's what the law does. It shows that we are sinners and we need justification and sanctification and repentance and redemption and we need Jesus to save our sorry souls. Now, Paul says, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. Now, we have to be careful what he means here about knowing sin. He means knowing sin in a personal, intimate sense that he's that he's he understands it. It's not that he didn't have an academic notion of sin. Everybody has that. I mean, even the pagans knew that. He was referring to the state of sin in his own heart. He, he's not saying, I would not have known sin existed if it were not for the law. Well, everybody knows that sin exists. You know, everybody's got to, you know, don't steal, don't lie, don't rape. You know, every pagan culture knows that. But what he was saying is, I would not have known sin in my own heart. I would not have realized that I was a sinner if it was not for the law. So there's nothing wrong with going out and preaching to somebody, a non-believer, hey, you are a sinner. The Ten Commandments says it, and your own conscience says it. No problem at all. I don't have any problem with that. Because that way you're using the law to convict of sin and to bring out knowledge of sin in the sinner's heart. But I do have a problem when you say, now, therefore, now that you know that you're a sinner, you need to keep this law so that you can be righteous before God. Now, that would violate everything Paul says in chapter 6 and 7 of Romans. Here's a quote here where Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown are talking about Paul knowing the state of sin in his own heart. That's what the law does for him. Quote, it was by means of the law that I came to know, know what a virulence and strength of sinful propensity I, I had within me. The existence of this, it did not need the law to reveal to him, for even the heathens recognized and wrote of it. But the dreadful nature and desperate power of it, the law alone discovered. Again, the personal subjective knowledge of the law, or the law is applied to the personal subjective state of Paul. That's what he came to know when he started looking at the law and realizing that he was a sinner. Now, Paul's example of coveting, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said do not covet. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown translate that, that translates that Greek word as lust, to desire after everything divinely forbidden. I like that translation good. For example, I w better. For example, I would not have known what it is to lust if the law had not said do not lust. Covet sounds a little bit prim. Coveting after somebody else's goods, whether it's their wife or their bass boat or z28 i don't care what it is covet doesn't really sound too bad but lusting after somebody else's property that sounds really bad which it is all right folks i'm finished with romans 7 verses 1 through 7 we'll take up romans 7 8 through the end of the chapter in the next audio and we will see that the theme of the rest of chapter 7 is all about how the law produces sin in the believer and therefore by implication, if it's producing all that sin in the believer, you ought not to be trying to get under the law if you want to be righteous and holy. See you next time. Hope you enjoyed this audio.